0: Amen. I love that song. That's one of the songs that we've used with the uh, alternative service that takes place uh, in the Family Life Center. And it is a blessing to know that we are children of God and that we no longer have to be slaves to fear or to anything else because we have been set free by the blood of Jesus Christ. And today uh, we rejoice over that. Uh, Before I get into the message, I, I think I need to apologize and maybe even give a little confession. Apparently, I said something last week that I did not mean to say. And I didn't realize it until this morning. Someone had listened to the podcast and they came and brought it to me and let me hear it. And I thought, I can't believe I said that. I was talking about Jesus Christ and the fact that he lived a perfect, sinless life. But somehow, and I heard it so I know that I said it, I said he lived a perfect sinful life. I just want to clarify, he did not live a perfect sinful life, but rather he lived a perfect sinless life. That's the problem with me looking away from my notes sometimes, is I catch myself saying things and not even realizing what I've said. So I apologize if I caused any confusion last Sunday, that was certainly not my intention. It is great to have each of you with us as we worship and as we dig into God's Word. And today I do want us to look at the freedom that Christ has given to us and the fact that we are set free. If you'll remember last week, I started a sermon series. It's entitled Simply Wanted. Dead or alive, and today I want us to look at the fact that we are to be dead to sin but also alive in Christ Jesus. But I want to begin with a passage of scripture that's not actually in your notes, and it comes from John chapter 19. I'll give you a minute if you want to turn there in your Bibles. John chapter 19, we're going to look at just a few verses, verses 28 through 30, and in this passage. Um, we actually have, it's a familiar passage to us because of the fact that this is um, that season of the year where we talk about this. This is a part of the Easter story, the crucifixion that is taking place. And it says in John chapter 19, beginning in verse 28, and this is from uh, the NIV for this portion of it. Later, knowing that everything had now been finished... And so that scripture would be fulfilled, Jesus said, I am thirsty. A jar of wine vinegar was there, so they soaked a sponge in it, put the sponge on a stalk of the hyssop plant, and lifted it to Jesus' lips. And then this is what I, I want you to catch. When he had received the drink, Jesus said, it is finished. With that, he bowed his head, and he gave up his spirit. You know, no one was neutral on the day that Jesus died. They either wanted him to be dead or they wanted him to be alive. Even after he arose, all of the leaders of the land, all they had to do in order to squelch Christianity in its entirety was to produce a dead body, to verify that Jesus had truly died. But when they could not, they proved that they really wanted him dead and they would not accept the truth that he was alive. You can't remain neutral either. Just as they were not neutral on that occasion, many wanted him dead, many wanted him alive. There was no in-between. You either believe in Christ or you don't. You are saved or you are not. You are his follower or you are not. You are a part of his church or you are not. Matthew 12, 30 says, He that is not with me is against me. And the reality is that that same truth that applied all the way back in the New Testament still applies today. You know, six months before the crucifixion of Jesus Christ, Jesus began to predict exactly what would happen, that the crucifixion would take place. We read in Matthew 16, 21, from that time on, Jesus began to explain to his disciples that he must go to Jerusalem. And suffer many things at the hands of the elders, the chief priests, and the teachers of the law, and that he must be killed and on the third day be raised to life. Tell you the truth, that sounds pretty plain and simple. It's easy to sort of pick up what's being said there, but somehow people missed it. A total of five times he would tell his disciples that he would be crucified, buried, and rise again. He even told his disciples where to meet him after his resurrection. Ironically, after he was dead and buried, the Pharisees remembered what Jesus said. In fact, they were concerned about what Jesus said, that he would rise again. They, posted, they, they had the Romans post guards basically to confirm that nothing actually would take place. It's interesting that those outside of the faith, those who wanted him dead, were very much aware of his claims to be made alive, yet those who wanted him to be alive Well, they just assumed that he was dead and the story was over. Now, the beauty of the story is that we know that the resurrection does take place. We know that the cross was not the end of the story, but rather it was simply the open door that would lead to the resurrection. I'm going to ask you to keep this image of the death and resurrection of Christ in mind as we look at the rest of the... This scripture this morning. You know, there was a book that came out a few years ago, a little more than a decade ago, that was entitled Citizen Vince. Now, I'm not going to recommend that anyone go and read this book. It was actually, uh, uh, there's some language issues in there. It's uh, somewhat vulgar, but there's one statement that I really appreciate. It's the very first statement in the book. The author writes, One day, you know more dead people than live people. Well, as we age, this tends to become more and more true. I see people nodding because you're saying, yes, that is definitely my story. I know that over the more than two decades of being a pastor I've done, I I figured it up this week, uh, well over a hundred funerals during that time period. The good news is there are more people in this church than there are people that I've buried, so uh, maybe I know more people who are alive, but obviously as time passes, I will reach a point where I likely will know more dead people than I do alive people. Uh, It's a part of living in this life. The reality is, if you live long enough, all of your friends will be dead uh, by the time you die. And the reality is that regardless of how healthy you may feel today, how much you exercise, regardless of how uh, much fried chicken you eat, uh, you will one day join them. It doesn't matter how healthy you are today. That sounds sad, doesn't it? Well, today I want to begin by considering death but not the physical death that we typically think of. Instead, I want to consider the spiritual death that Romans chapter six, verses five through 11 calls us to. If you would look at it with me, I'm actually going to read from the New Living Translation. If you're reading from the NIV, that's okay because sometimes it's beneficial for us to see how different people have worded uh, the translation. This is what it says. Since we have been united with him in his death, we will also be raised to life as he was. We know that our old sinful selves were crucified with Christ so that sin might lose its power in our lives. We are no longer slaves to sin, for when we died with Christ, we were set free from the power of sin. And since we died with Christ we know we will also live with him. We are sure of this because Christ was raised from the dead and he will never die again. Death no longer has any power over him. When he died, he died once to break the power of sin, but now that he lives, he lives to the glory of God. So you also should consider yourselves to be dead to the power of sin and alive to God through Christ Jesus. Now, the apostle Paul is talking about a change that has taken place in the believer. He talks about allowing the sinful life, the sinful self to die, and being brought back to life with the righteousness of God. Now, obviously, he's not talking about a literal physical death, but he is talking about a literal spiritual death. How many of you guys like old Western movies? Anybody? I love old Western movies. I grew up watching them. My mom was a big Western movie buff, so basically as soon as we got a TV, I think that was, well, that and the Dukes of Hazzards. We watched Western stuff for the most part. Uh, I remember watching some of the classics like High Noon and Butch Cassidy and The Sundance Kid and Blazing Saddles and all those kinds of movies. I think a part of what made those movies so attractive was the fact that they were relatively clean. Rarely did you have people cursing and sexual uh, things that were inappropriate. Um, The one thing that you did almost always have is somebody would die. Somewhere along the way, somebody would get shot, and they would die. Now, I will tell you, at times, even the death of somebody in some of those westerns could become comical. You know, they they would get shot, and then there was this long, slow, drawn-out process of death, and they fall back, and they got to say a couple more lines to get their money's worth for being in the movie in the first place, and finally, by the time they actually die, you're thinking to yourself, would you just go ahead and die? Because it seemed as though death took forever. Well, let me suggest that there are many in the church who talk about death to sin, but we are still hanging on very much like those who were shot in those Westerns. We've been stunned by sin and we cry out, oh, you got me but we're not quite ready to die to sin. Let me go back to something I said at the beginning today as I was talking about Jesus' death. Remember that Jesus' death is not the end. The cross was not the end of the story. As such, we don't have to fear death, even a spiritual death. Dying to sin is not necessarily something that ought to cause us discomfort. Jesus willingly chose to embrace death, knowing that true life was what awaited him after death. You see, now he lives for all eternity. The same should be true for you and for me. As we die to sin, we open ourselves up to true life in Jesus Christ. You know, physical death seems to bring division as we are separated from those whom we love so dear. Yet this spiritual death, dying to sin, actually has the power of bringing people together. It creates unity. One way in particular this occurs is with our relationship with Jesus Christ. According to our passage, we have been united with him in his death. He suffered a physical death, sacrificing himself for the sins of others, and we experience a spiritual death, sacrificing our old lives and embracing the forgiveness which he alone can give. There is unity between us and him as we celebrate his death and even our spiritual death. But of course, I also don't want you to fool yourselves. We have a tendency to either minimize or maximize our sacrifice. We minimize our sacrifice by choosing to not really give of ourselves entirely. Maybe that's a part of that slow death where we just want to hold on to that sin a little bit longer and then maybe eventually we'll let it go, but we minimize the sacrifice. We never truly, completely sacrifice ourselves to Him. We'll know that that's not what God intended for us but we also sometimes will maximize our sacrifice by almost playing the victim. We become so focused on all the things that we've had to give up to be able to follow Christ. We become so focused on how big our sacrifice is because you know what? I had to give up a lot to follow Jesus. But the reality is, none of us has ever given up as much as Jesus Christ gave. The writer of Hebrews says, says, In your struggle against sin, you have not yet resisted to the point of shedding your own blood. No matter how great your sacrifice is, you have never given up as much as Jesus Christ. And let me suggest that even if you had, there is a huge contrast between what he did and what you did. You see, he didn't die because of his sin. He didn't have to pay the price because he had made foolish choices. He died For your sins and for my sins. If in some way I must pay the price for my sin by sacrificing my old life, it was my sin that cost me that. Jesus Christ willingly chose to enter in as our sacrifice to pay the price for our sins. I got to tell you what he did does seem a whole lot bigger than what we did. Our unity is not just found in our relationship with Christ, though. Our unity is also found in our relationship with the body of Christ. Throughout this entire passage, we see plural terms over and over again. reference there, we died for our old sinful nature. The plural group that is being referenced here is the body of Christ. We, the people of God, the children of God, those who have sacrificed themselves, we are one. We are one united body. Our old self, our, the church, our old nature is supposed to have died. You see, all those who have died to sin enter into a sort of a fraternity or we are brought into a brotherhood of believers who no longer live like we did before. Instead, we are corporately on a journey toward righteousness. What a blessing to know that we don't have to do this by ourselves, that there are others who are on this journey with us. Now, you do need to understand there will come a time where you will not be able to look to the person to your left or your right and say, well, you know what, we're in this together. You're going to stand before the Lord And it won't matter who else is standing near you. You will be held up according to basically the grace of Jesus Christ and your walk with him. But until that day comes, you're not in this alone. You have others who will come alongside you and walk this journey with you. What a blessing it is to know that we do not have to walk alone. My question for you is, have you really died to sin? Have you really reached a point where sin is no longer your master? Or are you more like one of those guys in the Western who you know that you need to die? You know that sin should have no place in your life anymore. And you're kind of in that slow, drawn-out process of death, knowing that eventually it'll come, but I want to get my money's worth because I'm in the movie have you truly died to sin or is sin still your master? Of course, only after this spiritual death takes place is it possible for us to experience life the way that it is intended in the first place. Jesus says in John 10 10 that I have come that they may have life and have it to the full. This promise is applied in a couple of different ways. First, and perhaps the most familiar verse of Scripture, in John chapter 3, verse 16, it indicates that the believer is given the promise of eternal life. That means that we don't have to fear even our physical death as we are promised that life is just beginning at that point. Someone asked me recently about what heaven will be like. And there are all sorts of answers that come to mind for me. There will be beautiful signs, beautiful streets, beautiful scenes. Biblical heroes that we've only read about will be there with us. Family members that have gone before us. And of course, Jesus himself will be there. He'll be the highlight of heaven. But perhaps what's also as important is what won't be there. There'll be no more death No more crying, no more sorrow, no more pain. There'll be no more sin, no more suffering of any kind. And here's something that we often don't think about, but as I say it, it will probably make a little sense. There'll be no more clocks and there'll be no more calendars. Why? Because time won't matter anymore. After you 've been there for a thousand years, you will still have the exact same amount of time left in eternity with him, because basically time will no longer matter. The promise is not that we will live longer in heaven. The promise is not that God will give us a thousand plus years beyond what we experience here on this earth. The promise is that we will receive eternal life. That means we 're never, never going to die we 're never going to run out of time. So again, your clock and your calendar is not going to matter. Some of you guys who are late to everything, you're thinking, that's the place I want to be. The reality is time will no longer matter because we are promised eternal life. But the life that is granted to us is more than just eternal life. God intends for us to be transformed even in this life. He wants us to be overcomers. Paul talks about no longer being slaves to sin and being set free. And the image you get as one who is overcoming the power of sin. I wonder, do we still believe in the power of Christ to make us overcomers in this life? Far too many times I've heard believers in Christ justify sinful behavior by saying, well, that's just the way I am. I've even heard, we know God made me this way. But the reality is God never intended for his people to live dominated by sin, but rather he desires that we be set free. I tell you that in my case, that's just the way I was. And he has set me free. And today I celebrate the fact that I am a new creation in him. I hope that you do the same. I want you to imagine for a moment something that none of us have likely had to experience. Imagine for a moment that you were held captive. You were a slave. Now imagine that you were somehow redeemed. You were set free. Would you ever want to go back to the one who held you captive in the first place? Obviously, we know that the answer is no. There are rare exceptions. This past week, we celebrated uh, St. Patrick's Day, and uh, to look at his historical Uh, story, basically he was held captive and uh, he was taken as a young man, held basically as a slave. Eventually he would escape, but then he would go back to those who were his captors, not to return to slavery, but rather to bring redemption and hope to them. I believe today that many of us choose to go back to our captor, but not for the sake of bringing redemption and hope, but rather we choose to go back. We find ourselves knocking on the door of our captors, Asking if we can just come in just for a little while. Far too many people have put their faith and their hope in Jesus Christ. Yet we find ourselves going back to the same sin that enslaved us once before. And it has no place in the life of a believer. Well, the final thing that I want you to see today Actually, I was supposed to ask you a question. Are you just sitting back and waiting for the next life to begin, or are you truly alive in Christ? And all of us need to answer that question today. The final thing that I want you to see today is that when an individual dies to sin, when an individual is given a new life in Christ, that's when we are truly introduced to the power of transformation. In Christ's case, he turned the world upside down. Everything that the world thought they knew was changed. You know, I was reading recently about a little-known man. His name was Joshua Coppersmith. Listen to his story for just a moment. It actually begins with something that we are familiar with, but then we're introduced to Joshua Coppersmith. On May 24th, 1844, Samuel Morse, sent the first electric telegraph message from Washington, D.C. to Baltimore, Maryland. The message said, what hath God wrought? Mr. Morse, a devout Christian, was quoting from Numbers twenty-three, twenty-three. And for 30 years, actually 28 years, Morse Code was the most cutting-edge means of communication over long distance. Then, in 1872, Joshua Coppersmith was arrested in New York City. He was charged with attempting to extort money from gullible people by convincing them to invest in an instrument that he said would transmit voice over wire. He called it a telephone. Coppersmith may not have been a con man. What is more interesting is the reaction of the Boston newspaper that reported the case. It said this, Well-informed people know that it is impossible to transmit the human voice over wires, and were it possible to do so, the thing would be of no practical value. Of course, within four years, Alexander Bell did send a voice over wire, and he did call it a telephone. I wonder what that newspaper writer would have said about something that seemed even more impossible, a telephone that transmits voices without wires. Jesus transformed everything making that which seemed impossible all of a sudden real. He made it possible. You know, there are many misconceptions about the resurrection of Christ. In fact, some of them have even made it into mainstream theology and doctrine. An example of this is found in how Jesus was resurrected. Some would say that it was simply something that happened over time. Suddenly Jesus was resurrected. Some would say that Jesus resurrected himself. The reality is, Scripture teaches us that the Holy Spirit was the one who resurrected Jesus. I want you to know that the same Holy Spirit that raised Jesus from the dead is available to you and to me. I want you to know that even the most hardened sinner, regardless of where you've been or what you've done, by the power of the Holy Spirit, you can be transformed, you can be brought to new life. And as that happens, we will see that God will be the one who receives the glory for the transforming work of the Holy Spirit. The one thing that I would say with this transformative work of the Holy Spirit is that it is contingent upon two things. First, the presence of the Holy Spirit. If the Holy Spirit is present in your life, there ought to be a transformative work that begins to take place. God is not content leaving you in your sin. He wants you to be set free. He wants you to be redeemed. But the second piece of this is that we also must be willing to to be surrendered to his will. I mentioned it earlier during our prayer time that God has given us a great model in his son, Jesus Christ. In the Garden of Gethsemane, he cried out to the Lord, Lord, if there be any other way, let this cup pass for me. But he says, nevertheless, not my will, but thy will be done. And I would suggest today that we must embrace this mindset of not my will, Lord, but your will be done. And the centerpiece of that is a surrendered heart. I wonder today, are you truly surrendered to Jesus Christ? Have you reached a point in your life that basically you have come to the conclusion that your way is probably not the best way? I'll tell you, it's really hard to admit that. I'm a proud person. And sometimes my pride can keep me from releasing and saying, God, I trust your way as being better than my way. Sounds almost scary to hear the pastor admit that, but the truth is I think all of us at some point or another have fought that battle. Are you truly surrendered to Jesus Christ? What if he chose to take you in a way that you never planned? What if your employer came to you tomorrow and said, you know what, I don't think we need you anymore. Is God somehow out of control or can you simply respond with Lord, not my will, but your will be done. What if the doctor called this week and said, hey, we've got some concerns, can you come in? Is God somehow out of control? Or can you reply, God, not my will, but your will be done. I ask you today, are you truly surrendered to Jesus Christ? Because if you are, if the spirit of God is present and you are surrendered to him, God will begin to transform who you are and he will set you free and he will allow you to walk in the greatest victory you could ever imagine. I believe it, I've seen it and I know that it's possible regardless of what's in your past. If you would bow your heads and close your eyes with me. Father, as we come before you today, we know that you are a redeeming God. You are our only hope. I pray today that you would help us to simply recognize that your redemption is important. The sacrifice that you gave was significant. But Lord, through your sacrifice, you have made it possible for all of us to be set free. Not just for eternal life. We, we look forward to the day that we are with you for all eternity. Never again to suffer, never to deal with sin, never to deal with sorrow or pain or any of that stuff. But we also know that you didn't just redeem us for then. you redeemed us for now. But I pray that you would begin to do a work in us of transformation. Make us alive in you. But if there's sin that needs to be confessed, I pray that right now you would receive our confession. You would forgive us and you would set us free. Lord, I pray that you would help us to walk every day as those who are redeemed. I Pray that you would do whatever you see fit. For truly our prayer is not my will, but your will be done. We are in your hands and we entrust ourselves to you. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. I do want to thank each of you. I apologize. I did go a couple minutes long today, but I do want to thank each of you for being here today. And I do encourage you. Uh, to stick around, come back for the 2 o'clock celebration we're going to participate in. It's actually a drop-in event from 2 to 4, so if you can't be there at 2, show up at 2.30 or 3 o'clock, whenever you want. We would love to have you as a part of that. Thank you so much for being with us. If you do not have a church home, by the way, come back next week. We would love to see you again. Thank you for being here, and we're dismissed.